Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Ramsey and White Finance for Property Investors podcast. Uh, it's myself, host, uh, manager, director and founder of Ramsey and White, Joel White. And I'm here today with uh, Paul Smith. Paul Smith is a portfolio landlord, property investor, commercial landlord and the founder and mentor of, at Touchstone Education. Um, so Paul, Paul has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to business and property and uh, we've been working with him now for a couple of years and a lot of our clients have as well, and got massive value from Paul and his team over at Touchstone. So I wanted to welcome Paul onto the show today for him to share some of his experience in property and business and what's happening on in the economy. And hopefully you guys can get some value from this uh, today's episode. So Paul, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Well, Joel, it's a massive privilege to be here and uh, well, thank you. So any way I can help, you know that's what I want to do because I'm just, I'm just a teacher. Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. So do you want to just maybe elaborate a little bit if we go back uh, to, for those who don't know who Paul mm-hmm. Smith is and, you know, yeah. where you started, how you got into property, a bit, about, mm-hmm. a bit more about yourself? Sure. I've got a, a less famous, less famous brother that designs clothes. You've probably heard of that, Paul Smith. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's not me. Uh, there's a hell of a lot of Paul Smiths. I think when I was born, Paul was the most popular boy's name. Uh, so... Born in 1964, so as we record this, I'm 56 years old. Uh, Bought my first property down in a little place down south you might have heard of called London. Um, In, when was that? That was 1982. 269A, Roman Road. Um, And I paid almost, not quite, but nearly £9,000 for it. And it's nearly, oh, I don't have it anymore, but it's probably worth about 280, 290 now. So, and that, that, I mean, but by then I'd been in property forever. When I was three, health and safety, check this out. My mum and dad would kick me out the front door, not literally, they would let me out the front door. Yeah. And there was this, there was this housing estate getting built opposite us. And I would go and play on the housing estate all day for like two years until I went to school. Because yeah. I was like the builder's pet. So, yeah. it, but even before that, I mean, when I was, uh, seven, eight, nine years old, again, health and safety spoiler, my dad would let me use power tools because I haven't grown at all since the age of 11. I'm six foot now and I was six foot at the age of 11. So I was doing refurbs with my dad when I was seven. And you know, it was, it was a bit of a pain to be honest, being quite big when I was that young. So did you have to do this? Like when I was catching the bus and stuff or going to the cinema, I just take my passport with me to prove that I could get like half price. It was just insane. So, and, but even before that, uh, I mean, it's kind of in my family's blood as well. Cause my, my granddad, uh, he's an engineer. Uh, he was a founder member of the Royal engineers and he spent uh, five years in Asia Pacific during the second world war. And there wasn't so much internet in the second world war. So he couldn't really send his money home. So my, uh, grandma, so his wife and my dad, um, were living in Crystal Palace all during the Blitz. Yeah. So they got pretty much bombed every night. Um, and then they got evacuated to Yorkshire, which I suppose is why I'm in Yorkshire. Um, but they evacuated them two weeks after the Blitz ended. So that was, oops. But anyway, long story short, my granddad um, had got built up quite a lot of cash by the time he came back, as you can imagine, because if you've, if you've got five years money and you can't spend it, well, yeah. you know, relatively speaking, that's quite a lot of money. And he just bought a field in Essex. Um, built a massive bungalow on it Um, and then years and years later the maybe 30 years later 
um, the council came along and did a compulsory purchase order on half of his field and they built a housing estate in it. So I just, throughout my life, I've just seen all sorts of ways, reasons how property generates enormous amounts of money, like, which, is, which is good and bad because I've also seen how that money gets destroyed as well. Because if you don't do like planning for inheritance tax and, and trusts and, and legacy, so albeit my granddad made a lot of money, um, by the time he passed away, he lost it all, which is, it's not his fault. It's just the way the system works. Because, you know, when you get put in a care home or a nursing home and all that stuff. So I've been doing properties pretty much since I can remember. I think sometimes as well, that's like lack of education. People have the best intentions to set mm -hmm. out in business and property and have the skill sets to do that and build great relationships and get mm. good contracts and make things happen and generate money. Um, yeah. But unfortunately not always how to protect that money and long-term wealth, um, which obviously has its downsides. And like, like you said, when the kind of, um, if the government are involved or you, know, you get to a certain age, you know, that money kind of can start to evaporate if it's not protected or, yeah, well, just exactly on that, Joel. I mean, I spend a lot of time at Touchstone talking about wealth. And for me, the difference between being rich and being wealthy is that wealthy people have simply learned how to not exchange their time for money. So yeah. they've got assets that give them money, but they don't have to work. So that's thing number one. Thing number, as opposed to a rich person. Thing number two is for me, wealth is intergenerational. Now, just as an example, Let's say I spent, I don't know, 20 years or something, building up a 10 million pound residential property portfolio. I then go and die, because we're all going to die someday, aren't we? Sorry to do that to you on this podcast, but we well, are. Tax and yeah. death, as they say. Yeah. So if I've got 10 mil worth of uh, resi property, and then I pass away, um, I've got a little bit of inheritance tax allowance, a few hundred thousand pounds, but essentially I'm going to get thumped for, well, I'm not, my, whoever's inheriting it is, uh, for 40%, which is 4 million quid. Now, if you've got a 10 million pound portfolio, you probably don't have 4 million quid in the bank. So in order to pay the death duties, suddenly that entire portfolio gets liquidated. And because you've only got a few months to do it, it gets sold at less than it should be. And the other thing that I find strange about just looking at the difference between residential and commercial property, you take an empty commercial property and put a tenant in it, you massively increase the value. You take an empty residential property and put a tenant in it, you decrease the value because most people want to buy with vacant possession because most people aren't property investors. Most people want to live there, don't they? Yeah. So if you've got a 10 million pound portfolio you've just inherited with a 4 million pound tax bill and it's all tenanted. It's going to take you a long time to get those tenants out way past the moment that you've gotten to, uh, to pay the inland revenue. So that's why people build up wealth. And then very often the next generation, it's not their fault. It just gets destroyed because they haven't actually planned. So it's not wealth if it's not intergenerational. So one of the great loves of my life, for instance, is my private pensions. I love SIPs and SASs and I spend a lot of time teaching people about SIPs and SASs. And you know, we as a family have now got a SAS. Anyone that's watching this don't know what it is. That's a small self-administered scheme and it's for up to 11 people. So it's like a football team and you've got to be working together. You've got to have a sponsoring company. So you can't just wander out tomorrow and do it, but you can learn about it. But that can have a million, I believe, I don't know if you know, Joel, I think it's a million and 70,000 is your current lifetime allowance in a pension. 
Yeah, so, it's like a one one million and one hundred thousand, something like that. One million one hundred and fifty thousand, something like that. Is it okay? I mean, last time, like I, that, like that. last time I looked, it, it was a million and seventy. Yeah. But let's just call it, keep it easy, call it one point one. So I've got six kids. Um, I've got a wife. And so you know, that's even if we don't involve anyone else, that's eight of us. And then you know, sister-in-law, niece, this sort of thing. So my ambition is, by the time that you know I pass away or whatever, is that I want a fully funded SaaS with ten million pounds in it. Because here's the beautiful thing: a SaaS is a trust. It sits outside your estate. So versus the previous example I just gave you, the inheritance tax due is nothing. Now that is an example of wealthy behaviour. So does it really matter if you've got the time, the money, the effort? whether you build up a portfolio of 10 million pound of commercial property or 10 million pound of resi property, well, you, of course you need to know what you're doing, but the impact in terms of long-term wealth, well, that's huge. That's intergenerational, massive money pot. And that's why I get so excited about commercial property and pensions and, and I still do get excited about it. So I, just yeah, love it. I mean, it's, no, I will definitely come back to that as well because it's such a fascinating subject. And I think if you're going to get into property, like any investment, you've got to be looking, you know, you look at the short term, what's going to give you medium, but also what's the long term play here? And yeah. where do you want your portfolio to be? Um, yeah. and, and what impact that's going to have on your kind of own affairs, the tax affairs and, and your, your family. Um, so I think a majority of our clients are looking at SIPs and SASs to, to, to fund property through or lend money out to, to other developers. Cool. Um, nice. So it's a great vehicle um, that you can utilize. I think we do something called like a gap analysis. So we, a lot of our clients come to us to get the funding to build a portfolio and they're very motivated yeah. to build a portfolio, but then they, they sometimes quite often don't look at the downside of that. So you mm -hmm. just mentioned one of the highlights, 40% tax. You, know, you mm -hmm. spend all that kind of hard effort and work and raising money to build a multi-million pound portfolio and then you pass away and now it's 40 40% tax liability. How are you going to feel like having to pay 40% your children have to pay 40% and in, in most cases don't have the capital to pay that. So you have to, as you said, liquidate the portfolio. Yep. So there's a real gap in your business. So mm -hmm. you know, why take that risk when you can quite easily put structures in place that um, move away from that, um, which I think is fascinating. So we'll come back to that. So, right, right let's, let's go. So we, we've had a snapshot of kind of way, how you kind of grew up in the family and the background. T take us, so I understand like you had a, a bit of a, a quite a six, successful corporate career yeah. um, um, and then kind of transitioned into property. Um, yeah. So should we talk a bit about, you know, because I think there's a lot of listeners that are, that are in kind of corporate careers or, you know, smaller firms and looking to get into property and maybe not knowing how or, or, or what, when the right time is. So what, what were you doing before property in your career mm -hmm. and then what, how did you make that transition into kind of property and business? Sure. Well, uh, my first degree is engineering because um, a bit like my granddad, a bit like my dad, I'm very sort of, yeah, you know, I like making things. Um, they were kind of um, manual. My dad, my granddad, for instance, was a carpenter. Uh, so I never did that kind of stuff. I was always in manufacturing. Now, why is that relevant? I think that has been deeply valuable to me throughout my entire career because engineers talk about something called repeatability i.e. do the same thing, you get the same result. And that has made me in the world of property pretty good at working out a way to do something, be it service department or whatever. And then once I've done one, I've learned the lessons, it's just bang, 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 and just you know, keep going. So I started off with Fords, um, making, I was in Dagenham, uh, Essex. Um, I was in the engine plant and that taught me a lot of stuff. One of the stuff it taught me, Joel, and, and Pardon me if you know any listeners get offended by this. It's not. I'm not trying to shock anybody, 
But I actually started there when I was 17, because I was a year above where I should have been. So I'd finished my A-levels by the time I was 17. And in my first year working at Fords, I saw three people killed. Um, you know, industrial accidents, nothing I could do about it. They were just being stupid, frankly. Wow. They were, diff- there's various, uh, in a big factory, I don't know if you've worked in a big factory, they've all like guard systems and things to protect you from yourself. And these clowns had actually defeated the guard system. So the safety equipment that was put there to protect them, that had actually overridden it and killed themselves. And it wasn't just once, that was three times I saw that, you know, like just a few feet away. So the other thing that that's given me is an appreciation, I think a deep appreciation of how short life is. And you sometimes hear people say, you know, when you're gone on your tombstone, and I am going to stop talking about death soon, on your tombstone, there's like two numbers, you know, born, whatever, died, whatever. Then in the middle, there's a little dash. Because life is a dash, isn't it? I mean, I don't even know what age you are. I'm not even going to ask. But I bet you. You're 32. (laughs) But I bet you. How far ago or how long ago does last Christmas seem? Yeah, it seems... So for me, it's like yesterday. Yeah. And um, I mentioned earlier, I've got six kids. So my oldest daughter, Becky, she's 32. And it feels just like yesterday morning. I was bringing her home from hospital, having just been born. And she's 32. What happened? Where'd that all go? So engineer, life experiences in a factory. And then what I did is I got into management and I started running bigger and bigger operations. So by the time I was 23, I was a factory manager for Coca-Cola. Um, I love my time. I, I spent a lot of years at uh, Edmonton uh, in North London, uh, running their bottling plant there. And we won. I've always been quite focused on high achieving teams, not me, but the team high achieving. So believe it or not, we won factory of the year uh, three times, Edmonton. And that wasn't factory for Coca-Cola. That was factory of the year, full stop for the entire world. Um, and to give you a little feel for that, the units of measure probably won't mean anything, but when I arrived there, Edmonton, I was actually sent there to close it, perversely. Um, and I'm quite an honest guy. So can you imagine the shop stewards and they're all highly unionized and everything else. We've heard that you've been sent down here to shut this place. And there's me in my twenties and they're all sort of gnarled and grizzly 60 year olds and whatever. Yeah. Uh, quite, quite scary if you're 23 or whatever it was. And I just looked them in the eye and said, yeah, that's right. And they're like, what? Well, when we said you'd been sent here to shut us, we thought you'd deny it because that's what managers do. They lie. And I said, well, why would I do that? I have been sent here to shut you. What they've told me actually is get rid of that load of troublemakers, shut the factory, and then we'll give you a proper job and a nice pay rise. What? They said that to you? I said, yeah. So can you get everyone in the canteen, please? There's like 200 people work there. I said, and I just stood on the table and I told them, I said, so what you need to do is give me a reason not to shut you. And I've discovered a long time ago, Joel, and everybody listening, that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. So I didn't go there thinking, oh, how can I possibly keep this factory open? I went there, instructed to close it, and then I asked them if there's any reason why I shouldn't. And I'll give you another example. Uh, A bloke got sacked once because he was was a quality controller. This was at Edmonton factory. And what he was supposed to do is take five bottles an hour and do various quality tests on them. But someone pulled his check sheets, and for the last two weeks, every single test result had been exactly the same. He wasn't doing his job, he was just copying the results. So he wasn't actually doing anything. So he got sacked, and I'm the final, I'm the factory manager, so I'm like the final appeal uh, guy. And this helps me a lot when it comes to 
legal rights and wrongs in property. Because very often people get scared if, if the other person threatens them with a lawyer or something. You need to be very sure about your legal rights. You need to be very sure about your structures. Um, so limited companies, limited liability partnerships. And to go sort of slightly biblical on you, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for everybody else. And if they're engaging with me in the world of business, they better know what they're doing. Now, that's not true if I'm educating them. Yeah. If I'm educating them, I'm looking after them. But if they're doing business with me and something goes wrong, well, sorry, sunshine, that's your funeral. You shouldn't have done that, should you? So I learned that. Very, so this guy had just lost his livelihood, comes into this final appeal meeting, and he brings this barrister with him because you're allowed to have a representative. So there's just me and the team leader who sat him, and this sort of barrister, you know, from the bar, top legal guy, and he sat there with all these big papers and everything else. And the guy says, bet you wish you hadn't sat me now. I said, well, I didn't sack you, he did. Oh, well, you know, the company. I said, well, why would I have any feelings on it? You've come here to present your side of the case. Pat, who's the team leader, who can present his side of the case. So far away. And anyway, long story short, this barrister tried to position an argument with me that it wasn't this guy's fault that he'd just written everything down because um, he, he, he couldn't read English because English wasn't his first language. And we as a company hadn't checked that he could read English. Uh, so I just said, I just listened. I said, um, yeah, what have you got to say to that? And he said, well, it's true. We can't prove that we ever trained him to read English. Um, and he said, just give me a second. So he went downstairs, went to the locker room, came back again, and he brought a copy of the Times with him. And he gave it to me and said, ask him how long it takes him to do the Times crossword. So I just gave it to him and he just walked out and said, fair cop, off he went. So you, you got to stand up to people sometimes. So um, one of the books that I've written is a collection of my sort of top six nightmares of of um, my property investment career. Yeah. So if I gave you an example, for instance, it's called the pop property survival manual. So it's like, you know, six screw ups that I've made over the years. Uh, or my six biggest screw ups that I've made over the years, because I'm sure, you know, like everybody else. Um, in fact, I love that expression, Winston Churchill, show me the man that's never made a mistake and I'll show you a man that's never made anything. Yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not possible to be perfect. So, I think as well, once you, when you're in business as well, you're going to make mistakes and you've got to, it's how you, I guess, approach them mistakes. Um, I think, I, I think you just made a couple of great points there. The quality of questions you ask yourself are great because you always hear people, you must hear all the time, how do I, you know, I can't afford this and, you know, I've got no experience. Um, you know, they must have more money than me. So they're just, they're all like automatically telling themselves, you know, they're, they're a hurdle for themselves. So it's more like, you know, how am I going to afford this? Or how, who do I know that's done this who I can learn from? You know, and it's kind of asking something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for me, I just, I tend to summarize it, Joel, as you can either make money or you can make excuses, but you can't make both. Ah, and, and ultimately, there's one person that's holding everybody back and it's the person they see in the mirror every morning. Yeah, spot on. So, you know, what are you telling yourself when you see yourself when you get up in the morning? Um, yeah. I think that's why it's important to have um, like goals. I always talk to the team at Ramsey and White about you know, mm -hmm. what goals and I say don't come to, to Ramsey and White just to like pay your council tax or electric bills mm -hmm. but come here and use it as a platform to you know elevate yourself and springboard your life. Learn from the lenders, learn from the investors. I mean we've done like you know hundreds and hundreds of uh, finance applications for clients this year where it could be 
commercial conversions, service accommodation, developments, portfolio acquisition, you know, learn from that and then take that learning and apply it to your, your life. But you have to have goals. I think it's not only good just to have the goals, but actually have the, you know, persistence and, and tenacity to make them goals a reality by taking action, right? So... 100%. You'll sound like Jim Rohn now. I love Jim Rohn. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, Jim, Rohn, Jim Rohn says discipline is the bridge between goals and ambition. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, you've got people that are dreamers and who want to do things and like talk about it, but don't actually take any action and, or they start taking action and don't realize how hard it is. And, you know, they give up. So you really got to dig deep and you've got to link them goals to something that's important to yourself. Um, and, you know, yes. without kind of any perspiration, as it were, you, you probably ain't going to achieve what you want to. Um, I think the other point you meant as well, the legal rights, I think that's so key, especially being in business and in property. I think it's too easy for people just to get into deals and not really know their ins and outs and what's, what, what is. Sure. Well, to, to give you a, a practical live example of that, that's also in the book that I'm talking about, Property Survival Guide. Um, a number of years ago now, it's a good few years ago now, um, I wanted to do a commercial conversion. And there were three investors that got involved to fund the whole thing, to, um, to buy the property for cash. Okay, but then we needed to go and borrow another million quid to actually do the conversion. And never occurred to me, but fortunately I protected myself. This one was actually with an LLP. Um, so I got the, the offer of funding from NatWest was, I can't remember, 1.1, 1.2 million. Yeah, it was a few quid. Um, but wait for it. Two of the investors refused to release their first charge. So I couldn't borrow the money from NatWest. Now, what am I supposed to do in that situation? NatWest is not, I mean, the, the building cost was a few hundred thousand. So NatWest or any lender is not going to give me a million quid plus to develop it without first charge, are they? I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the, a commercial lender like NatWest are going to want the first charge all day long because yeah. that's the way so, they operate. Yeah, but the way the building had been purchased, I'd been quite happy to give the people putting the money in first charge because they gave all the money for the building. In my wildest dreams, because these people were supposed to be experienced property investors, never occurred to me that they wouldn't release their first charge. Just didn't occur to me, but they wouldn't. So what they said instead was, if we release our first charge, we want you to give us a personal guarantee for, you know, £600,000 or whatever it was. Can't remember the figure. Yeah. And I said, no. And they said, well, what do you mean, no? I said, no, which part of no, don't you understand? I am not giving you a personal, personal guarantee. Because I don't know whether you'd agree with this. It's very easy to get a PG, a personal guarantee, or someone that's skinned, because they've got nothing to lose. If, on the other hand, you've got millions of pounds, no multimillionaire is going to give you a PG lightly. So, yeah. what, so I just I... said... Sorry, Paul, carry on. So I just said no. So incredibly, what they then did was they said, well... Um, so there was a slightly unusual situation. There's, there's two first charge holders, joint first charge holders and one second charge holder. So the two first charge holders repossessed the building. I said, what are you doing that for? I said, I'll just give it to you if you want it. Why are you adding on the costs of a repossession and everything else? And they said, we're going to embarrass you on social media unless you give us back every single penny. I said, do what you want, sunshine. But I'm not embarrassed about it. It's you that's embarrassing yourselves. If you think as professional property investors, you should have got yourself into a situation like this without realizing that NatWest or whoever is going to need first charge. You want your eggs examining. Now, what these two did 
is they, they took out completely all the money that the second charge holder had put in. So they got their money back and stitched up the third guy, if that makes sense to you. What they then said is, oh, you should give him the money. Why? You caused this train wreck. What's it got to do with me? But if I hadn't known that, or if I hadn't understood how to use those company structures, that could probably have cost me a third of a million. I think the, like my issue I've got with personal guarantees, I've seen it before where developers um, are, are offering investors personal guarantees. Mm. Say, you know, I'll give, say, Paul, here's a personal guarantee for a million, and then here's a personal guarantee for someone else for a million, here's a personal guarantee for a million. Yeah. But their net worth might be half a million. So they can't yeah. even, you know, or maybe a million, but they, they, they've issued they're three not, million PGs. So, you know. They're not good for it. Or they're, or, for or it. they're worth a million, but three quarters of a million of that is their family home where they've got the missus on the title. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got your partner on the title, that can't be repossessed. So they might, in theory, have the assets. But you, and I know, Joel, I mean, you must see it all the time. Um, I'm thinking of one bank where me and Aniko, my wife Aniko, sorry, I haven't really talked about her, um, we've got almost £5 million worth of lending from this bank. Yeah. We're realistic enough to know that if you're going to take that kind of amount of money from a bank, they're going to want some PGs. But the PGs are really quite modest. We've got joint and several guarantees uh, for £40,000 each, but that's on a £5 million facility. So I will give a limited PG I'm never going to give an unlimited PG. That will be insane. Yeah. So based on, based on that experience then, Paul, is that was, how do you kind of approach deals moving forward? Obviously when you guys got into that deal, it was probably not how it was left, I guess. On the other. And how would, you know, anyone looking within the community. It wasn't planned that way. It's yeah. certainly fair to say. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, but this is business and property kind of, unfortunately you can, go in and there and jvs as well when you get into a deal I, what i've noticed obviously we see a lot of clients use jvs where um they have the right intentions and they got the, the, mm. the it seems everything seems to be aligned but things happen in their life you know things people have different they want they want to get out or they don't want to put the work in or something else mm. happens certain circumstances so mm. unfortunately they do can break down or how would you how do you approach jvs now and experience? I mean, well okay so um we're a lot fussier um, we're only prepared to work with people where we've got really good alignment in, in our values, um, where there's a very high level of trust. And uh, I discriminate, or I've got two different kinds of JVs. So a joint venture, literally a joint venture, where I'm going to work with someone is long-term. And you can't do that based on a few weeks or a few months of knowing the person. So the main joint venture that me and Aniko have got at the moment, it's called GAP. So at the moment, so that stands for Gordy, Abby, Aniko and Paul. Yeah. So that's the, the four directors. So the two founders and the four directors um, of most of our businesses. So um, Abby is our managing director of Touchstone Education. Uh, she's also a director of our estate agency, Diamond Estates. She's also a director of our, uh, lettings agency, Diamond Lettings, you know, so I won't talk, go through all the list. Uh, and then Gordy, who I've actually known Gordy, he's uh, Jack, who's my oldest son, is 30. Gordy is his best mate. So I've known Gordy for the best part of 20 years as he's gone through secondary school and, you know, done all bits and pieces. He's, he's 30 now. So I've known Gordy for 20 years and I've known Abby for five years. 
So the four of us in Gap, which is the best example I can give you, well, it's pretty much the only joint venture I'm doing at the moment. Um, so the four of us invest together. We've done a number of investment properties this year. Uh, and next year, we're taking it up to one a week. So we want to do 52 properties over the course of the next year. We've got a particular sweet spot, which is given coronavirus and lockdown and all that stuff, we don't like flats so much. We prefer houses because yeah. we've seen a big increase in people that want gardens, they want a home office, uh, they want a slightly bigger property. So in our area, which is South Yorkshire, we're buying properties between 150,000 and 200,000 pounds. Um, and the, so to discriminate, what I'm, the reason I'm saying that is we, you, some people call this a joint venture, but I don't. We've got a number of investors who just invest money for a return. Now, for me, that's not a joint venture. That's a loan. Okay. So 100% of those loans. So I'll give you an example. We're just in the process of buying an off-market property. Uh, it's a three-bedroom detached house for £170,000. We then want to spend £30,000 on it, doing it up, plus adding a fourth bedroom. So it's a very run-down three-bed. It's going to be a very nice four-bed. So the purchase price plus the refurb around about 200,000. Um, we've got one investor. So I only, I only like one investor per project. We're paying them six and a half percent and it's 100% uh, property backed because they got first charge. And this investor is a proper business person. Um, they're Swiss, they live out in Switzerland and they've introduced us to a load of other Swiss investors. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, Joel, but you probably do given your background, but the, the bank interest rate in Switzerland is negative. Yeah. So, by, you know, so if you've got money in Switzerland, whether you've got Swiss francs or euros or whatever you've got, I don't care what you've got, you go and put that in a Swiss bank, you're going to get paid a negative interest rate. So when we're offering, and so the structure is I've got a proper full-on JVIT. So Gap, it's simple, Joel, he's owned four ways, 25% each, me, Aniko, Broadie, Abby. Um, you know, just all equal partners doing different things, but we're all pulling our weight in different ways. And all of those um, property deals uh, are being financed by uh, investors that want six and a half percent on their money. So that, I guess, has been my response to not just that one incident I mentioned to you, but I've been, you know, I've been in business uh, for 38 years now. So you kind of, well, something else I did that was very useful. Um, probably when I was your age, in fact, when I was your age, sort of you know, early 30s, I did an MBA. And of all my kind of academic qualifications, my master's in business administration is, is definitely the one that I use the most. So what, what, did you learn, what did you learn the most from the MBA? Because I, I quite, I'm quite into doing, I'm doing my IFA qualifications. I'm, I'm yeah. not, I, it's about progression, right? You know, so. Yeah, yeah. What, well, I was what, very fortunate. I was working for, well, I was working for Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola was actually a JV, which taught me a lot again, yeah. um, between Coca-Cola and Cadbury's. So I was actually a Cadbury Schweppes employee, you know, Schweppes lemonade and, yeah, yeah. and all that. Mm -hmm. So I was making soft drinks, um, but I saw all the kind of the inner workings. Now, Cadbury's, very fantastic company to work for. It just makes me sad they're being sold to craft now. Um, but they sponsored me through my MBA. So I did my MBA part-time by what was called distance learning. Now, there's a 50-50 chance you won't even know what this is. But uh, I used to get a VHS video cassette delivered to my house yeah. twice a week because they would record the lectures 
and then I would watch them and do my homework assignments and everything else. So I learned discipline because I had young children at the time and I would typically do my MBA between midnight and about three in the morning. That was my slot when I had the time to actually do the studying and everything else. From a, a business literacy point of view, I'm not an accountant, I'm an engineer, but it taught me balance sheets, P&Ls, how do you rip apart a company or a deal? Uh, so one of the things that Cadbury's let me lead on was a, um, it was a 400 million pound acquisition of a Mexican mineral water company. They had some soft drinks as well. So I actually bought uh, a mineral water company called Aguas Mineralis in Mexico, but I actually structured it through Canada. So I put all the tax shields in place because it's never about what you make, it's about what you keep. So I got involved in raising shareholder capital, foreign acquisitions, and that was the first time I'd ever done a meaningful acquisition on a sort of sensible scale. So, and I think because I was dealing with other professionals who, and we all had the right advice, when I moved into the world of property in my early 40s, it's almost like I didn't know that everybody else didn't know what I knew. Yeah. So I was guilty of assuming that JV partners knew too much and they were doing things that I would never do, but it wasn't my place to criticize. It was my place to look after my own position because that's what happens if you're a business partner, isn't it? Yeah, of course. So, and what, what, do you, so, what, do you, what do you prefer, Paul? Do you prefer trading businesses or property? Oh, the okay. same. I, I don't teach property. I teach business. I yeah. teach business and I teach wealth. Yeah. So um, if I just think back over the years, um, I bought a company for a pound called uh, Bottle Recovery Scotland. Yeah. So what they used to do is run years ago, run around all the pubs and clubs in Scotland, collecting the returnable bottles, clean them, and then sell them back to the brewery. So that's why it's called Bottle Recovery Scotland. But it didn't do that anymore. And what it did was it was something called a co-packer, which probably people watching this won't have a clue what it is. So whiskey companies, vodka companies, their peak is Christmas. So on average, believe it or not, people in the UK drink two bottles of spirits a year, but one of those is the Christmas. So 50% of annual consumption is in like two weeks. So you wouldn't put in place 200% capacity to use a half of it. So they use co-packers, they use third parties to help them out during peaks and maybe do promotional this and that. So I turned Scott pack into a co-packer. So the reason we bought it for a pound is because it hadn't, it made losses for the last number of years. Um, but you know, fascinating again, I mean, most people don't know that you can buy companies and utilize and incorporate them within your own financial affairs and use their prior year losses to help as a tax shield for future years. Hmm. So this isn't property education. This is business education that I do. Uh, when I tell people, well, did you know that this financial year you can use your annual investment allowance and if you're structured correctly through an LLP or in your own personal name, you can earn £1 million tax-free per person. What? No, you can't. Yes, you can. And I did a webinar last night. I had uh, 1,030 people on it or something. And I just started talking and there were some people in the chat box that says, this is not possible. And I actually went back and said, I agree with you. And they came back all confused. What, what do you mean you agree with me? I said, Henry Ford, if you think you can, if you think you can't, you're probably right. Yeah. I can do it. Yeah. You, you think you can't do it, so you can't. Yeah. So my advice, Sunshine, is just go, because don't wind yourself up listening to me, sharing with people that want to be wealthy how to be wealthy. Mm -hmm. If you're certain, 
that um, it can't be done, go. Why would you waste your life listening to someone like me trying to teach you something that you think can't be done? So, so off he went. Now, I wasn't trying to be rude, but I don't want to focus my energy on that level of negativity. I want to fo- so at this moment in time, um, one of my top ambitions is that in the next couple of years, Joel, is I want to list uh, a PLC. I want a public limited company and uh, I want to read. So that's kind of next on my tick box. But yeah, so over the years, I've bought and sold whiskey companies. So I bought that for nothing. Well, let me give you the little detail on that. So I bought it for a pound. I then got a grant from the Scottish executive, as it was at the time. It's called a regional selective assistance grant. Most people haven't got a clue what I'm talking about when I start talking about this stuff. I got £400,000 grant because it was a whiskey company. And I invested that into the property. At the time, this was pre-2007, 2008, you could get match funding from banks. So I took another £400,000 from the RBS. So having spent a pound, I've suddenly got 800 grand. I then used my network. Your network is your net worth. I got one of my pals at Shivers to give me two whiskey bottling lines. I put them in myself one summer. I love doing that. Um, got some business from all the various whiskey companies and whatever else. Uh, I got another uh, grant from Renfrewshire Council, which is just the local council. That was another 40 grand. So I'd got the best part of a million quid without any of my own money and giving no personal guarantees. And people say, oh, no, you can't buy a business for no money. Uh, well, true. I had to give a pound for it. So if you think you can't do that, if you don't want to learn from an old dog like me, well, fine. Don't learn from an old dog like me. There's plenty more fish in the sea, as they say. I think that is, um, that is good business. You know, that is good, yeah. good business. Like using, there's so many grants and opportunities available. you just got to look for it and contact oh, Joel, tell, tell me about it. I put a video up about bounce back loans. And it's got something like, I don't know, on YouTube, it's got like maybe 16,000 viewers. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say 95% of them are very, thanks for that, Paul, didn't realize you could do it. Mm-hmm. And then I've got this 5% of people with a different view of the world to me. And they're like, that's an outrage. How are we going to pay the nurses? What? You ain't got it, have you, pal? It's like, they think there's like a cupboard in the Bank of England somewhere with money in it. Yeah. And, it, and if I take the money out, to go and buy a property with it or something. That means they can't pay the, na- the, the, the nurse's wages. It's like, yeah. mm, no, it's called economic activity. Mm-hmm. I take the 50,000 pound loan, I use it, and I have Paddington Bear. Have you ever heard me say my Paddington Bear story? No. Okay, so Paddington Bear, years and years ago, I used to love Paddington Bear when I was about eight. Paddington Bear saved up and he got this five pound note, okay? And he took it to the bank, put it on deposit, and he was getting like 5% interest or something. Comes back the next year, and he wants his £5 back. So the lady behind the thing gives him his £5 back and gives him like, you know, 20 pence interest or whatever it was. He gets his notebook out. No, it's the wrong £5 note. It's got a different serial number. So when people say, are you using that bounce back loan as a deposit on that property? Well, if I've got a £50,000 bounce back loan and it's come into one of my companies that's already got £200,000 in it and I now put a £100,000 deposit on a property, which money did I just use? Did I use the bounce back loan or did I use a hundred of the 200 I already had? And people just, it blew their minds. And it was really fascinating for me to see the different reactions. Because for me, a bounce back loan was designed to stimulate the economy. 
I'm a business. I'm a business investor. I'm a, I'm a property investor. And the bounce back loan, specifically, you were eligible for the bounce back loan if your business had been adversely affected by coronavirus. Yeah. Well, mine had, because I'd had various mortgages going through that got stopped. So, but then people said, but you're still making loads of money. I said, yes, but that's not what adversely affected means. Adversely affected means you're making less money than you otherwise would have done. It doesn't mean you're bankrupt. What government in their right mind would give loans to bankrupt companies? That's insane. Mm. What it wants to do is prop up the performance of companies that are performing well. So I unashamedly took bounce back loans and I unashamedly used them to help me do more property deals. Yeah. So if, for instance, I'm using £100,000 of money that I've already got to go and do this £300,000 deal over here, why can't I use the bounce back loan to go and buy a £50,000 property for cash? But as soon as you've put the 50000 into the 200000 and you've got a quarter of a million all mixed up, what am I using as the deposit? Yeah. In my head, it's just business funds. Yeah, I think from, uh, yeah, I completely get that. I think when we spoke to like various lenders, um, they, they, they will take each, some, some lenders completely, it's a no-go, but other lenders will take each case on its merit. So what's the, what's the personal situation with this business and what's going on in the background? And if it can be explained um, uh, like that, then um, nine times out of 10, it can go through. I think, yeah, but for me, Joel, I, well, actually, possibly can, no. I, I hardly ever use mortgages or bridging to buy a, a property. Yeah. I'll almost always buy it for cash. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are buying it for cash, there's no conversation to have with the lender because there is no lender, is there? Yeah, exactly. I guess if you... And then when you've refurbished it and then you're mortgaging it at the other end, well, the lenders are now focused on well, what's it worth. They're not focused on how did you buy it in the first place five months yeah. ago, are they? Yeah, I mean... some. So the thing is some lenders are getting tighter on what's going on in the background. And I think mm. if you've got a trading business that's been affected by COVID, they completely understand. Um, but there's money in the account. That's fine. So I've got, I'll give you an example. I've got a client at the moment um, who bought a, um, a, a semi-commercial unit mm -hmm. and renovated it. And they mm -hmm. used some of their own funds, some of an investor funds, and they also had a bounce back loan involved in the transaction. Now they, they've gone, we've gone to a commercial lender and the commercial lender have asked for like, how was it purchased? And mm -hmm. I said, look, this is, he's bought it of his own money, but there is this, this and this from the bank account, as you can see. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, what did you use the bank loan? And I was like, well, just for the refurb towards the refurb, the works. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, okay, that's fine. They can get comfortable with it. So it's just, mm -hmm. it, it, as long as you can explain it away to them and get them comfortable, um, then they normally they'll lend moving forward. I think yeah, the issue you might have had, Paul, is people jumping on that video and going, you're telling them just to buy it with a bounce back loan. And I think maybe not saying I was expressly yeah. not saying that. Yeah, I think that and, they, but they then, on the bandwagon, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, but and and overwhelmingly the comments were positive. There's there's like ten times more likes than dislikes. Yeah. Um, but there was this whole media campaign that just entertain me really and it ended up being in the sunday times wow. um guru advocates not repaying bounce back loans mm. that's not what i said yeah. i said during the video six times you need to repay this loan yeah. i asked a rhetorical question at one point during it i said so so of course you've got to repay this bounce back loan or have you 
because you need to be really clear about which legal entity took it out. So you personally is discrete from the limited company that took it out. And I also went on to give an example of a hairdresser. I think it was a hairdresser. I said, so, you know, for instance, if you're a hairdresser and you furloughed all your staff and you're not locked down, you weren't allowed to work or whatever else. So if you in good faith have taken out the bounce back loan through your limited company that does hairdressing and this lockdown carries on for, you know, forever. And unfortunately you have to shut down your hairdressing company. Well, actually you won't have to pay it back because it's your limited company that's folded, not you. Yeah. But so anyway, I mean, it's just, I guess the more you put your head above the parapet, Joel, and the more you try and help people, the more you run the risk of getting people chuck things at you. Yeah, and I, I've been to your events, Paul, and I've also worked with a lot of your clients who um, they've had massive value from, from the training and have gone on to do phenomenal, so, f- f- phenomenal kind of results in property in a much shorter space of time than they probably would if they were trying to do it by themselves. So, mm. you know, it's, there's a lot of value there. Um, and, you know, I think, how, how do you deal with, you know, you're a business owner, right? So you want yeah. to, put, you got to put yourself out there. You're responsible for mm-hmm. getting traction and, you know, letting people know, obviously, like you said, like say out of 10 people, nine people are happy. One person isn't. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you deal with that kind of, that kind of negative kind of spotlight? I guess sometimes if people try to do, because some people it's like, look, for me, I'm just tunnel vision. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm cracking on. People are going to drag you down. That's, that's the way they are. Uh, but other people actually, they stop themselves from putting themselves out there because they're so nervous about what their friends think or their family. Yeah, sure. How do you do? I, I can't, I can't do that. Um, the reason I do this, Joel, is um, I, I had three more yesterday. The, the thing I ask people is, look, come to my training, do I mastermind, whatever it is. Can I please ask you one thing? when you get that financial freedom, when you get that success, can you please just tell me somehow, write me a letter, send me a postcard, send me an email, send me a Facebook message. So the reason I do it is I'm, I'm thinking at the moment about uh, a guy called Indy, his full name's Indigit Gill. I've, been, I've known him for about a year and a half as a pharmacist. And he just came to me, so look, he said, I don't know if it's gonna work or not, but you know, I can afford to pay for your training courses because of the job that I do. I've spent seven years learning to be a pharmacist and I've practiced as a pharmacist for another 10 years. And I've discovered after that 17 years, that I don't want to do it. <laughs> so like, Fair enough. Uh, so what do you want to do? Well, I want financial freedom through property. And he did it with about sort of 10, 11 months, that sort of thing. So the reason I do it is because of people like Indy. Okay. That's why I do it. And if I did what you suggested, because I know there are some people like that and kind of keep myself to myself. Don't tell anyone how many Indies, or Karen's or Heather's or Peter's would live less of a valuable life than they otherwise would if I try and help them in some small way. Mm. And I know um, if, you, if you Google Buffett, everyone, if you Google Warren Buffett, 10 rules for success, Warren Buffett, wise old man, very, very um, you know, sage investor. He's got 10 rules for life. And one of them is, I could recite all 10 to you, I won't. Just go and Google it if you want to find it. But one of them is, unless you respect yourself, nobody else will. Okay, so you have to have the self-respect that you know what you're doing is valuable. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. And that's so true at various levels. And his next one, number five, is beneath fear, there's always, uh, sorry, beneath anger, there's always fear. Got it back to front. 
So when people are being angry on social media or wherever, I know it's not my issue, it's their issue. Because I'm showing them something that they want, but they can't have it. And like you were saying, um, you know, oh, you must have been born with a load of money, or you must be a drug dealer, or there's something fishy going on, or, you know, whatever. They give themselves reasons why they can't do it. So one of the transactions we've got going through at the moment, Joel, is um, we're just in the middle of purchasing, hopefully, we should get the mortgage offer this week. This is not one you could help us with, unfortunately, because it's in France. So I'm buying a 1.8 million, oh, sorry, it's 1.67, but we're going to spend about 100 grand doing it up. So it's like a, a 1.8 million euro villa. And one of the things I'm doing at the moment is I am learning because this has got a fantastic sea view. It's in the Riviera, looks down over the Mediterranean, looks down over a harbour. So I'm currently doing my RYA powerboat training nice. to learn how to drive powerboats. So this one qualifies me. So I've done this one. This qualifies me for up to 10 metres. So I'm buying a powerboat, but not yet, because the one I want is like twice that long. So I've got to go and do a load more courses. And I've just been sharing this. Because I'm a working class kid from a Yorkshire mining village. And, you know, I've got a million pound holiday home in Scotland. I've got a million pound home in Doncaster. I'm buying a two million euro home in the south of France. I'm buying a sodding great powerboat. Now, for me, that's quite special. <laughs> and most people are genuinely delighted for me. But the reason I'm sharing that isn't to piss everybody off and think, you know, what an idiot that guy is showing us all this stuff. It's because I genuinely want to inspire people to be able to do the same thing. That's possible. But you want to see these little twisted groups where they're saying, oh, well, is he really buying that house in the, in the French Riviera? Is he really going to buy that powerboat? Or is it just some big marketing scam? Uh, and I've even got one of them said, uh, I won't believe that he's bought the villa in the south of France until he's got a picture of Lewis Hamilton above the fireplace. I'm like, do you honestly think I care what, you, you know, what goes on in your little brain? I've no interest in that. I've got a general interest, Joel, and here is where I'm genuinely conflicted. I want to help as many people as I can. The reason why I care what people think is because I'm able to pull back from the brink some people. So if people are skeptical, I get it. I'm an engineer. I want to know it works before I go and sign up or whatever. So skepticism, I'm absolutely fine with. Aggression, and trying to belittle the other person, I'm not okay with. So that's where my border is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but generally speaking, I mean, if you go um, and look at the, the YouTube, I, I do a video every Wednesday called Money Matters, just on YouTube. And if you go and look at that one, for instance, um, I think last time I looked this, and it was just five five things, five lessons I wish I could have given my younger self. So I'll just go through some advice that I would have given myself, you know, 30 years ago. And it's got, I think, 97 thumbs up and one thumbs down. But occasionally, if one of my videos gets put into one of these groups, because there are a few of them, um, people have got nothing better to do than gripe and moan about everything. It was, I know when it's happened, because suddenly I'll get 150 thumbs up and there'll be 50 thumbs down. But it's not because people actually... They haven't even listened to it. They've just seen a post in one of these negative groups. Um, and they've all just jumped on there and given it a thumbs down because I think that's a cool thing to do. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just in, as long as you, 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 
you guys as a company, as a family, as a business have your own vision and mm. you're adding value to your own lives, to your family's lives, to, to your clients, to their mentees. And I think it's just about moving forward and trying to navigate away from that. But um, you're gonna get you're gonna get that. Um, yeah, well, that I mean, hate kind of, the, the trolls. Well, no, I wouldn't even call it hate or trolls. I mean, what what I say to myself is, what successful person in the world doesn't have someone that doesn't like him? You know, Richard Branson. Uh, do you think there's a group of people that think Richard Branson's a crook? Uh, yeah, probably. And literally, is Richard Branson a crook? Yes, he was convicted of VAT fraud when he was very very young. So does that mean in some people's eyes that you know, whatever Richard Branson does, fundamentally he's always a criminal? Yes, it does. Yeah. But has Richard Branson done fantastic things for the world? I think probably yes. Um, but one of my favorite sayings actually is, um, there was never a statue erected to a critic. So if you want to do something that you're remembered for, you actually need to go and do something. And does that mean sometimes occasionally things might go wrong? Yes. And there's plenty of people out there in this world that criticize everybody else. But they're not going to be remembered past their last comment, much less have a statue erected. You know, so I'm talking metaphorically a statue erected in their name. So if you just think back of all the great people throughout time, you know, many people would say that Winston Churchill was a great leader and military history is a particular interest of mine. Um, <clears throat> but there are still people that say, you know, Winston Churchill was a male chauvinist and he, it's true, he was, because he was a product of his time. Mm. Um, I, I've no idea whether the Boer War in, uh, you know, before the turn of the 20th century means anything to you. Um, but, but we, the British, it wasn't the Nazis, we invented concentration camps and we chucked all the Boers into them. Um, so, and, and Winston Churchill was involved in that process. And Winston Churchill, my great, great, great granddad was on the beaches at Gallipoli. Well, Winston Churchill was the first sea lord when we made the disastrous decision to go and try and invade Gallipoli and we got loads of our wonderful soldiers and sailors killed. But there's people that won't let that go. And, and they, you know, for my money, unless Winston Churchill became prime minister when he did, we'd probably all be speaking German. You know, and the, the world could have been a very different place. Um, but some people are, oh no, he's not a great leader because of Gallipoli and because of the Boer War and because of concentration camps. Sorry, he was a great leader. That's why there's a load of statues put up to him. But this, he, even he, even though he's dead for goodness sake, they've got a load of critics. So if I take you to, to my mentor, a guy called Dr. Dr. John Demartini, he made a huge difference to my brain because um, I've been doing webinars and, and selling training courses for quite a long time now. And prior to me, meeting Dr. Demartini for the first time, the most amount of money of courses I'd ever sold on one webinar was 25,000 pounds. Okay, and then typically, let's say they're a thousand pounds each. So I told you know, 25 courses. So Dr. Demartini said to me, he said, well, this is fascinating. So you might have, you know, four or 500 people on, on your webinar, but you only sell 20 or 25 things. I said, what's the matter? Does your stuff not work? I thought, well, of course it works. I said, he said, well, I said, why don't you sell more than that then? And I said, well, because I'm British. And, you know, you're American, I'm British, and we British were quite reserved about this. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, British people quite often don't like asking for the sale. They don't like asking for money. They don't like asking for a deal. They don't like asking for JV finance. I don't know whether you'd agree with that generally, Joel, but 
Brits are quite reserved, especially yeah. when you compare them to the Americans. Yeah. So he said to me, all right, let's talk to me about this. And what happened in my brain, something just went click in my brain. And I worked out that because my stuff actually works, if I didn't sell it to someone, I was letting them down. Okay, so that's how my brain went click, completely upside down. So I went from being quite embarrassed about asking for money through to, I know that if you don't buy this, your life is gonna be less wealthy and I failed you. The very next webinar, I promise you, same slides, same me, same bloody everything, apart from this was different. Very next webinar, I'd gone from 25,000 pounds to more than quarter of a million pounds. I mean, it's just boom. Now, what my ambition is, is to do the same thing with the mindset of property investors and, and business buyers. Um, Aniko, my wife, is a fully qualified John Martini facilitator. So we're unique amongst property companies, property training companies in many ways. But one of them is that we've got a whole course on mindset. Now, I don't know of any other wealth or wealth education company. I and mean, we've got a full online two-day course on mindset. And it comes back to what we were talking about maybe half an hour ago. If you think you can and you think you can't, you're probably right. So if you want to do a thing, be it property investment, be it anything else, you need to think that you can. And if you currently think that you can't, you've got to work on your mindset. Yeah. And so mindset for me, as a property investor, is the single most important thing. It's the thing that will change everything. And how do you do that? How do people work on their mindset? You know, people want bigger, bigger muscles, they go down the gym. People want to be fitter, healthier, they go for a run, eat better. How do you work on your mindset? Because sometimes your mindset can be impacted by what you watch, who you're around. So what would yeah, you of course. No, not can be, will be, Joel. You know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So it, it, one of the ways that you can massively change your mindset is by changing your friend set. So just a little exercise uh, for all your listeners and viewers here. Just, just take a piece of paper out of everyone and just you know, write down the six people you spend the most time with. And then by those six names, so that could be work, it could be home, it could be anything. And by those six names, um, leave space for two scores. I want, to think, I want you to give them a score out of 10 for positivity or negativity. So are they miserable gits or are they optimistic, happy people? And then in the next column, how many million are they worth? And you're not fractional. Yet. So, and if they don't talk about money, they're not millionaires. Mm. So millionaires talk about money. So, and when I do that exercise live with uh, people in training uh, rooms, Joel, what I normally find is people are hanging around with six miserable skin gits. I nearly used a rude word there. And the transformation that you can see, if they suddenly start hanging around with four or five optimistic multimillionaires, it's quite hard not to be or become a multimillionaire if you're hanging around with a load of other multimillionaires. I went, so, went for breakfast once with um, a number of uh, wealthy business owners, multimillionaires, and I had breakfast yeah. with them. Um, I was at a trap day, and I, they yeah. were just, And I just found the level of conversation they were having was just such on a different level, like big, mm. big picture thinking. They were talking about problems they were having in their business, but how mm. they were solving them problems. And just mm. moving forward, it was such a positive, inspiring fry up i've ever had in my life but there uh, you go. It, it was, uh, yeah just it's spot on there yeah I couldn't and, and the other specific tip i give to anybody that's watching this or everybody that's watching this is i've already mentioned my mentor dr john de martini go google it 
is, is I, his favorite book of mine is called The Values Factor. Mm. Um, and what he teaches you in that book is we all perform best when we align ourselves with our highest values. And if you're trying to do something that isn't in accordance with your highest values, like for me, I hate admin, I hate paperwork. I just drives me nuts. I'm very fortunate to marry to an accountant who loves it. So she does all that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't touch it. But for me, my highest value is training, it's education, it's having an impact on people's lives. And I know that I can carry on doing that and I don't get tired. So if you're like a kid doing a video game and you're, you're, like, you're obsessed with video games, that is your highest value. So we've got people in our Touchstone community, well, we used to call it community, they now call it Touchstone family. So it's not something we've done, they call it Touchstone family. But we've got violinists, we've got vocalists, we've got pianists, and they do property, not because it's their highest value, it's because you know music or poetry or whatever it is, is their highest value. But they link property to that highest value because that is what gives them the money to do it. And what you said earlier on, you're talking very, very movingly about dreams and you know why you do what you do and the fact that Ramsey and White you don't want people to just turn up pay the bills if you can help someone connect with their highest values whatever that is so we've got one of our community for instance uh, is originally from the Kashmir and is a successful property investor uh, based in Leicester um, and so he's just taken over an orphanage in the Kashmir you know like where he's from and there's 26 girls uh, between the ages of, let me get this right, I think three and 16. And, and he's funding this orphanage because it used to be run by the Church of England, um, but the, the old vicar, whatever he was, and his missus uh, are retired because they're now in their 80s. So this orphanage was just going to get shut. Now, I don't no, no, I, you know, all your viewers will be thinking different things. But what I'd invite them to do is put themselves into the mind of that guy who's funding this orphanage in the Kashmir. He'd walk through, literally walk through walls to make sure those girls got enough money because mm -hmm. it's so high in his values. So if you can understand your highest values, your mindset will shift. And, and my highest value is helping others to create wealth. That's what I do. Um, so anything that gets in the way of that, I'm going to walk through it. And I'm not going to be bothered if people think I shouldn't be doing it or have a go at me or whatever, because it's, it's inconsequential in the same way that it would be inconsequential if my highest value was raising sufficient funds to make sure that seven-year-old orphan girls in the Kashmir had enough to eat. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's that valuable to me. That's why it's my highest value. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I'm just going to give you a couple of stats here. And yeah, then, go. So COVID... One yeah. of the commercial lenders, or one of the high street lenders, should I say, mm. has announced 640,000 mortgage payment holidays. Yeah. Uh, they waived 100 million in overdraft fees. Yeah. Uh, they've offered 25 billion through the UK government kind of uh, either bounce back loans, mm -hmm. various loans that have been provided, uh, support schemes. So, what impact do you think that's going to have on the economy or is it going to have, or is having on the economy? But also, I want to loop that into another question. You've traded through a number of recessions mm -hmm. or seen for recessions. Obviously, just talk about recession and what that impact is going to have on what, 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 how do you see like your experience there and link it to kind of what's going on now and how, where mm -hmm. is, from a business point of view, where, what, impact is that going to have on and where is the opportunity for the investor or business owner 
2021. So that's a very good, if somewhat complex question, Joel. So you give me about six questions there. Yeah. I'll try my best. So the banks, um, the liquidity, the money supply is the first part of what you talked about. I don't particularly see that as a bank initiative. That's a government initiative. And everything changed Q1 2009 after the last recession. Because all previous recessions, um, interest rates had gone up, um, inflation uh, had gone up, unemployment went up. But for the first time, 2009, uh, we got this thing called quantitative easing. And the government and the banks have been throwing around billions of pounds ever since. So money has never been so cheap. And for the first time in Q1 2009, you can just see it if you look at the Bank of England charts, the base rate dropped below the inflation rate. Any time in history before that, the Bank of England base rate, so the, the which of course is which the basis of which uh, people that save money get paid interest, for the entire sort of recorded history of time, you could put your money in the bank, and even in the early 90s, when inflation was maybe 7 or 8%, you could still get 13 or 14% in the bank. So having money was a good way to make money. Q1 2009, that changed. And we've seen a fundamental change in global macroeconomics because money's never been so cheap. So how's that reflected through to um, other categories of asset like property as a, an investment class? Well, it used to be an option to be a saver. We're no longer a nation of savers because, well, the money markets think that it's priced into the value of sterling that the interest rates in the UK are going to go negative in the next six months like they've been in Eurozone since 2014. So it's easier than ever to lend money, is my experience. So we completed on our 10,000 square foot office in Doncaster the 28th of February, which is kind of, you know, just two or three weeks before lockdown. Um, and Barclays, we're on an, it, so that is a, that's a chunky old loan. It's about a million quid, it's just with Barclays. And we're at 1.95% on that. So even the fact they knew that coronavirus was coming and lockdown was coming because we've got a strong trading company they were still quite happy to lend money to us at 1.95 percent just on that point so to interject there for mm. those who are listening who want to get into commercial and feel like commercial rates are a lot higher um versus your residential <laughs> buy to let if you actually go if you start going above a million plus then actually the rates are significantly lower. So it's a deal. I thought I'd just put that out there because uh, you actually yeah. save a lot of money the bigger, on the bigger deals. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's gonna, I don't think you do loans in France. My apologies if you do. No, 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 not yet. <laughs> yeah, all right. So on that 1.8 million French property, um, we've got an interest rate of 2.1% fixed for the next 20 years. Nice. That's not a bad rate, is it? Well, if you if you look back to what Norman is it Norman Lamont, uh, the yeah. chancellor of the Exchequer, I think the rates back then were what circa 14, 15 percent. So yeah, twenty well, well, well. at, at that sub three percent is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's two two point one. Yeah. So, um, so your question, your first part of your question, the quantitative easing, the money supply, um, it, saving cash as cash is is not a viable option for retail consumers for you know for, for retail customers anymore. Um, stock markets, don't know how you feel about the stock markets. Um, they're quite volatile, um, you know, up as well as down, of course. 
But yesterday, the main indices all lost two or three percent because of the effectively because of the trade war between the U.S. and China. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got the presidential election coming up. Uh, stock markets are at an all-time high. Um, so if you go through the other ways you could put, your, where else could you put your money? You relatively quickly come back to property is probably, in my view, the safest, most predictable, long-term place to put assets, uh, either residential or commercial. Because you've got the twin benefits, of course, of capital appreciation plus your rent. That said, coronavirus lockdown, all the rest of it, you gave you ruled off an impressive list of figures there. Uh, but one of the things that I didn't particularly think was very bright that the government did was it said eviction ban. And that's put a lot of residential landlords into rent arrears. So you need to adopt smart strategies to make sure you don't get bitten there. So um, has it made any difference to our commercial uh, tenants? No, not, not a single one. Has it made any difference to our rent to buy tenants? No. So major strategy that we've had for the last few years is rent to buy. If anyone doesn't know what that is, that's take, take a tenant, let them rent it off you on a lease option for seven to 10 years typically, and then they buy it off you. But they're paying an, a, a top up on a monthly basis. So if they miss one of those top ups, the entire top up pot is forfeit to you and the, the option is forfeit. So we haven't had anyone on rent to buy not hit their, not hit their rental payments. We do a fair amount of service accommodation. So again, we, haven't, we don't have any tenants in service accommodation. We've got guests. So the second part of your question, what's coronavirus done to, or lockdown done to the property market? Well, indirectly, it's yet another bash from the government in my head at uh, residential landlords. So I think as a residential landlord, you need to be a bit smart and you need to look for property strategies that are COVID proof and that are lockdown proof, uh, is my view. And the other thing I've already mentioned is I think flats have typically devalued, houses, detached houses have typically appreciated. We know through our estates and letting agency that the property market is bonkers at the moment. Um, it's just roaring away. And of course you've got that stamp duty holiday in the background and, you know, and all that stuff. So, but if I then answer a different part of your question, which is what did I learn from previous recessions? Well, first recession I went through was the early eighties. Interest rates hit, I think about uh, 13, 14%. Inflation was 17%. Can you even imagine that? You've never seen it, have you? You have literally never seen that in your adult career. I'm, I'm sure you haven't. No, no. Um, that's when I bought my first flat for 9,000 pounds. And all my mates, my family told me I was gonna go bust. I couldn't possibly afford to repay a 9,000 pound mortgage. Well, with a little bit of hindsight, lesson number one that that um, recession taught me was property is a fantastic long-term investment. So if you've got a little bit of short-term turbulence, yeah, things do cause it to bounce around a little bit, but just stick with it. And if you stick with it for decades, don't buy something today expecting to be able to flip it for hundreds of thousands of pounds tomorrow. It's a long-term game. You've got, you've got to be in it for decades, is my view. So that's, that's recession number one. Recession number two is quite interesting. I think as a mortgage specialist, you'll find this interesting. By the early 90s, which was Norman, uh, Norman, uh, Lamont and John Major, the yeah. comedy double act, uh, interest rates got back to 14, 15% again. And by this time, I was buying much bigger houses. So I remember one house that I bought was about 460,000 pounds. It was a detached house in a place called Bushy near Watford, Hertfordshire. Yeah. yeah. It's outside of London. Um, yeah, M M1 Junction 5. So it's inside the M25, uh, but it's not London, it's Hertfordshire. Um, so I had to come up with 465,000 pounds, but UK interest rates 
were 14 and a half percent. So my network, my high net worth individuals I was hanging around with, um, what did we do? Well, we decided to go and take a punt and we took French mortgages from BNP, Banque Nationale de Paris, to buy UK property. And UK interest rates were like 12, 13, 14%, but BNP rates were 3% because that was the French mortgage rate. Mm -hmm. So, and people, when I say that to people, like, oh, well, you could do that now, you can't do it then. Yes, you can. Go to the BNP website and they're still offering uh, Euro mortgages on UK properties, if that's what you want to do. So, it, so recession number two taught me how to use the input from my network and use it to address challenges caused by the recession. Then at a different level, um, I knew that because UK interest rates were so high, because French interest rates were so low, and this was before the euro, by the way, Joel, so this was French francs. Yeah. So this is in the 90s. Um, because the UK rates were so high and the French rates were so low, the French franc was depreciating against the pound. And if you go check out the French franc versus the pound over that decade, over the 90s, it lost a lot of ground. And I knew it would because UK interest rates, the international money markets, I mean, something else that people don't know, but I think the international money markets, people think is stocks and shares and bonds and all that. Absolute nonsense. The money markets around the world is Forex trading. The amount of volume of Forex that's traded makes the stocks and shares market look like some sort of, you know, little kids club or something. It's monstrous. So what do Forex traders look for every night? They want to park their money somewhere with a currency with a high interest rate. Now, the UK at the time had interest rates of 12, 13, 14%. So it wasn't a surefire thing, but I was pretty confident that the pound would go up versus the franc. So when I sold that property, I think I had it for about five or six years. I bought it for four, six, five. I sold it for seven, eight, five. So I made 320 on the property as in terms of capital appreciation. But I made another hundred grand because when I had to pay the mortgage back, I needed to use a lot less pounds to pay it back than what I in the first place. So recession number two really reinforced my creativity and really my reliance on my network. By the time we got to recession number three, which is 2008, 2009, which you probably can remember, um, what I was now focused on is I've got a lot of decades as a property investor already, and I was really wanting to accelerate and go for it. Um, so I started buying things um, off of the bank's distressed assets divisions because the bank was doing a lot of repoing. Yeah. Um, so I just hooked myself into the bank, started buying things straight from the bank. So I'm thinking about a four-story office block of solicitors that we bought. The landlord had gone bust. And you might think, how could a landlord go bust? Well, he got divorced, so he had to give half his money to his wife. Yeah. But here's, here's the critical thing that he screwed up. He got divorced twice in one year. So top tip for all, my, all your listeners out there. So he got divorced, got married again, and then got divorced again in one year. So if you've got to give half your cash to Mrs. Number one, half your cash to Mrs. Number two, that's not going to leave a lot of cash for you, is it? Wow. So I don't know if you normally do relationship counseling on your podcast, but I'm just <laughs> going to say, <laughs> maybe don't do that. Yeah. So, um, in fact, Billy Connolly cracks me up for a lot of reasons, but he said, I'm not going to get divorced again. It's too expensive. I'm just going to find a woman I don't like and give her a house. It saves all the heartache in the meantime. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> and that works the other way around as well, ladies, before I get a load of kind of abuse for being set. Um, it's, uh, but anyway, so I've got a really, really good deal there. 
we were buying stuff at auction. So it taught us, uh, or reinforced the lesson. I mean, I've heard people like Warren Buffett and people like that saying, fortunes are made and lost in recessions. But the 2008, 2009 recession was the first time where I could see all this property come into market. Uh, it was difficult to get finance then because the, you know, the, the supply of money really tightened up. Yeah. Um, so that's really where I started to take the bargains, but also use private finance. So that was the recession that taught me all about private finance uh, and just scale. So if I think about 2011, 2012, yeah, we typically we'd done a few properties each year, but those years after that recession, we were doing 40 to 50 property deals a year. So it really took us to the next scale. Amazing. So how did you, what do you do in the property business, Paul? Like how do you, how do you scale 40 to 50 property deals a year? Like what, what do you need in a, someone who wants to buy a couple of properties and they're thinking, how do I yeah. do that? How do you go from, you know, yeah. a couple well, you of people? You need a team. Yeah. So we've got, if I add together our various businesses, so the estate agent, the letting agent. Now, those are two pretty useful things to have if you want scale. So, you know, imagine you've got an estate agency. Well, that gives you access to some deals, doesn't it? Yeah. Imagine you've got a letting agency. Well, that kind of helps you to manage the properties afterwards. Yeah. So what I love about them businesses, oh, sorry to interrupt again, Paul, but the, what I love about them businesses is the information it gives you, that critical kind of data, yeah. like what they're selling mm -hmm. for, what they're renting for, the, yeah, the yeah. demand as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so we're just getting ready to take it to the next level again. Um, what we've done the last few years, well, you can hear, can't you? We, me and Annika, we've tended to focus on the kind of slightly bigger properties, like the 10,000 square foot office, the, the 1.8 million euro villa in the south of France and all that. Where we want to get back to next year is really sausage machine scale one a week. So later on today, actually, I'm, at, I'm interviewing a project manager. I've been, interviewed a project manager on Saturday um, and he's currently managing the refurb of 80 properties simultaneously and he's used to putting multiple trades on a task so he's used to re-roofing two houses a day he's re he's used to doing an electrical rewire in a day so that's the kind of person needing your team so you know if you roll the clock forward a year from today joel and you know let's say we're sitting, sitting down having a chat and saying well how did 2021 go or whatever i want the top floor of my building to be full of property professionals. So over the next month, I'm going to be recruiting project managers, quantity surveyors, commercial surveyors. Um, so what I don't want to do is I don't want to get into a physical uh, building firm. I don't want to do the refurbs, but I want the trade, an architect. I should recruit an architect, um, you know, all of the professional services that you need. So you need a team. And, and that's what we had before. So the structure we had before was, we had six project managers. Each one of those project managers would manage a maximum of three, normally two projects at once. And if your cycle time, so engineering expression, if the time between buying it and finishing it, get it remortgaged, we'll say 12 weeks, then each project manager, if they can do two at once and the cycle time is 12 weeks, well, they can do that four times in a year, can't they? Mm. So each project manager is giving you eight a year. Having that team upstairs on the commercial unit, would that kind of tie in with your aspirations of, of setting up a PLC? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I'm focused. Um, I guess it's fair to say I'm focused 
me personally, I'm more focused on the commercial deals, the business deals. Mm. So I'm currently looking at a couple of acquisitions, um, one in the care home sector, one in the printing sector. Um, but then at a kind of a retail level, that's what gaps for. That's the kind of property yeah. a week. So I'm involved in that, but it's not really my day job. So moving into next year, one of my mates actually said that, Paul, you made yourself redundant because I used to do a lot of physical face-to-face -face teaching. Yeah. And because of coronavirus, it's, it's all gone online. So I've recorded it all and I've probably got back three days a week. So what you'll see me doing next year is a couple of days a week on the education side of things. Uh, generally, not from the UK though, I'll probably be in the Riviera quite a lot and maybe in Scotland where all my, most of my adult children are and whatever. So I'll just be using the internet to do the educate, well, the internet with the vehicle for the education, if that makes sense. Say a couple of days a week. And then three days a week, I'm really gonna be buying and selling businesses. Just going back to my corporate MBA roots. So I probably won't be doing transactions at the same value level initially, um, but that is the way to get to PLC. That's so I want a full listing on an international stock exchange. Amazing. So last point then before you head off, I appreciate your time. I know we can run no us a bit of here, uh, Paul. Um, I've got a client that's been in residential property for the last 30 years, mm. but over the last 10 years has focused his efforts and energy and his team on commercial property right. and uh, via their SaaS. Mm. And he said to me the other day, I wish I'd been doing commercial because yeah. my residential have performed okay, but compared mm. to what I've done in the last 10 years, I mean, mm. what he learned in the last 30 years, he's applied in 10 years, but yeah. you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Mm. Obviously you, your, your webinar last night, you had a thousand people on, I'm sure mm. they got a lot of value talking about commercial property, commercial mm. investment. Um, for those who are listening in, I'd recommend getting involved in that on Paul's next webinar. Um, how would, um, What's your view then on like for those who wanted to get into commercial but have this kind of stigma in the head that oh I have to get some res residential first and do that for five years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, very clear. Don't. So of of people that come and do my commercial courses, it's like 45, 45, 10 percent. So what I mean by that is 45 percent of people before they do my commercial courses are already residential investors. 45% of people are not investors. They've never, they've never invested in property. And 10% are already commercial investors, but they want to learn about the tax or the structure or you know, there's something they need that they've got experience being a, a commercial investor, but they don't understand capital allowances or structure, you know, stuff like that. Of that 45%, so let's call it nearly half. And you could say kind of roughly half and half is, half people are investors one way, shape or form, the other half are not investors. And the people that find commercial property before they've ever done residential property, almost exclusively, they'll say, what on earth would I ever want to do residential for? It's just, it's too hard. You've got to deal with tenants. You don't have FRI leases. You can't get capital allowances. The tenants have got rights this long. You've got rights that long. It's just the opposite of everything in the world of commercial property. And anytime I start talking about commercial property, Joel, people say, oh, but the death of the high street. What's that got to do with anything? I mean, it's like most commercial property is not shops. So what I say to people is, um, if you want a commercial property portfolio, you better make sure it's COVID proof, lockdown proof, Amazon proof, 
and most importantly, technology proof. Because around about 30% of the jobs in the world, I believe, won't exist in 10 years time. Mm. So there's a, there's a one third chance that, you know, if you're watching this and you've got a job, you're going to be unemployed 10 years from now. So what are you going to do now? So think about, I always say, think, try and think about multiple streams of income. So I'm not saying sack the boss and get out of your job or whatever. I'm saying keep it, but add buy to let, add commercial property, add service accommodation, add stocks and shares if you can. Just the more streams of it, because Buffett says, keep, I feel like a tape recorder and I keep saying Buffett every 10 minutes. Yeah. What Buffett says is the average millionaire has got seven streams of income. So maybe a little task for everybody listening to this. Just write down a piece of paper, how many streams of income have you got? Because I don't know whether I look like it or not, Joel, but I'm actually a pensioner. I'm 56. Wow. So because I've got a SAS, um, you know, one of my streams of income, I've got a fully funded SAS. It's all pretty much all in commercial property. And my average yield in my SAS is around about 12 to 12 and a half percent, just from rents that come in from my various commercial property. And given it's fully funded, that gives me more than £10,000 a, a month as a pension. So people say to me, Paul, you don't look very stressed. Well, well probably you wouldn't be if you had. <laughs> you know, it's just, and the reason I'm saying that, again, isn't to irritate anyone. It's just because, well, if anybody's watching this and they want commercial property and they want it in a SAS and they want to retire at 55, I know they can do it. How? Well, I did. I think uh, one of the main points as well is that you, you and your team are actively still investing in property and yeah. still looking to grow that, which keeps mm. you current and up to date mm. with what's going on in the, in the market yeah. to help you. And I think if you're going to be around people to learn from, then you want them to be active, have a portfolio, have a business, mm-hmm. but also still be active so they can advise you accordingly. I remember I spoke to a couple of people that were saying that they were training, mentoring, but because they built up a substantial portfolio using um, uh, the express mortgages, 100%. Oh, mortgages, they, yeah, they got yeah, like bed and breakfast in the mortgages. Yeah, got like 50 properties, you know, in the space of a couple of years by using that, that fast track product. Um, yeah. And then hasn't performed that well and then they're like well maybe we can be become mentors and then but then they're not doing any deals and they don't know what's yeah. going on uh, and that can have an impact so it's important that you do get around people that understand this stuff and like you yeah. said many streams of strat and many streams of income and that can come in uh, many forms uh, especially yeah, through property. Yeah. Uh, paul thank you so much for your time we've covered Pleasure. we've covered loads um I've made loads of notes here, uh, which is great. I'm going to share with the audience um, on the show notes. Where can, for those who don't know, Paul Smith, Touchstone Education, mm-hmm. the team there, Gordy, Abby, Abby, Annika, how can they get in touch? How can they reach out to you guys? Um, maybe suggest two ways, which is just the website, uh, Touchstone Education, all one word, .co.uk. Um, but increasingly, because you know, it's a technology world we're living in, uh, just maybe jump onto YouTube. And just put Touchstone Education and just going, it's free and everything. Just go and check out the Touchstone Education YouTube channel because um, love to see you over there. Brilliant. Thanks again, Paul. Thanks, Joe. Catch you later. Bye bye.